Welcome to Ariana Answers. I'm Dr. Ariana Brandolini, a clinical psychologist who lives in New York City. Every week, I answer a life question submitted by a listener like you. In the second season of my podcast, I want to unpack anxiety around situations in life we find ourselves in. Each episode will have two parts. One where I break down the situational anxiety we experience, and the other where I have an expert in the field give us some advice. Would you like your question answered? Head over to the description of this video to submit. Now, let's jump into this week's episode. Sometimes ask yourself, would I rather be happy or be right? I'll leave that one right there. Dear Dr. Ariana, I've had a pit in my stomach for weeks because I'm dreading going home for our family reunion. Family gatherings feel like a minefield. There are so many unresolved issues under the surface, and that means arguments always break out. I worry about unexpected triggers of my own. I feel like I turn into a child whenever I'm around them and I hate it. I wanna address things in a healthy way since there are certain hurts that are still there with specific family members. But there's a part of me that also just wants us to have a nice time and keep the peace. What's the best way forward? So I wanna to talk to you a little bit about family systems theory. This was introduced by Dr. Murray Bowen and it suggests that individuals can't be understood in isolation from one another, but rather as part of their family. And the family is an emotional unit. Families are systems that are interconnected and interdependent in terms of their individuals. And so none of the individuals can be understood outside of the system. According to Bowen, each family member in the system has a role to play and rules to respect. Members of the system are expected to respond to each other in a certain way according to their role, which is determined by relationship agreements. Within the boundaries of the system, patterns start to develop as certain family members' behaviors cause and are caused by other people's in predictable ways. So maintaining the same pattern of behavior within the system may lead the family to do things that are very dysfunctional, but this is how the machine is used to running. And this is why so many of my patients come to me and they're like, why do I turn into my 13 year old self whenever I go home? This is because the family machine will do everything it can to keep things running smoothly. Whenever a cog in the machine wants to change its position or purpose, the machine will go into overdrive to maintain the status quo. That's because it doesn't want to be disrupted. If one cog changes, everyone else is thrown into disarray. And because every cog is invested in status quo because you're getting secondary gains from these types of interactions, which I find fascinating. And if you actually take a beat to notice it, you can really see, the, see it when you go home and when you notice how you react in certain families and how people relate to each other. And so when it comes to conflict in family, it's so much harder to maybe let that go than romantic partners or friendships um, because you know family members are supposed to be closer to us, right? Quote unquote, supposed to be, right? Um, and so we have an expectation of trust, an expectation of closeness with family members. And so 
when we figure out that this isn't the case, it can be really painful and disappointing. And family conflicts are particularly stressful, especially during family gatherings. Oof. The elephant in the room that is not addressed sometimes doesn't get addressed until it's a screaming match, right? And it creates stress and anticipation for the event. What will happen? Will it combust? And afterwards, you leave feeling like, oh, I survived it, right? Without having a discussion of what's going on or an apology or some kind of repair, when a trust breach has been created, that sense of anxious anticipation will continue because we don't know what to anticipate from this person in the future, right? Another thing that doesn't help is that we often assume the worst in family members because of our history with them. Rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt than if we were with somebody else's parents, say, right? We have a lot more grace for other people's parents' behaviors than we do our own. Our mom might just breathe wrong and we're like, mom! And people are like, what's the big deal? What they don't realize is that it's not just that instance, it's the thousand other ones beforehand that all lead up to that moment, right? So what to do if you're in a family gathering and there's someone there in which you have unresolved conflict? Honestly, my advice, and there's debate about whether we should be giving advice here, but you guys aren't my patients, so I don't care. My advice, honestly, just be polite. Even though it might feel like something needs to be addressed immediately, a family gathering is really not the time to rehash old conflicts or conversations because they can get really messy really fast and involve lots of other people. So be polite, redirect conversations that might start to escalate, try to maybe avoid the person as best you can. And so I hear you all saying, yeah, but like my uncle, you don't know what he's like. Listen, even if no one else does this, once we learn how to manage ourselves, and we learn to trust ourselves in terms of how we can actually not engage, how we can manage our feelings, how we can deal with our triggers. You can go a long way in minimizing battles in the family and promoting peace. And you'll also be surprised how that affects our own feelings when we start to go into get family gatherings. And you know we don't necessarily feel as highly anxious in that anticipation, right? And then, after maybe you've had the gathering, you can move forward in one of three ways. I'm gonna go through them. You can try to resolve the conflict, you can forgive and forget, or you can minimize and cut off contact, okay? So let's start with resolving the conflict. Why is this so hard? Because often we are trying to communicate in the midst of conflict, right? When you're in a family gathering and there's a fight, everyone's trying to have that communication right then and there. It's not effective because of what conflict does in our brains. The amygdala, which is called the brain smoke detector, is responsible for detecting fear and preparing our body for an emergency response, right? Fight or flight, which I'm sure many of you have heard about. So. When the smoke detector alarm in the amygdala goes off because someone's coming at you or you've been triggered, it releases a cascade of chemicals in the body to prepare for an emergency. Adrenaline and cortisol flood your system, which elevates your heart rate, which causes you to shallow breathe, which makes you sweat, which gets you flushed. And so this is all your body preparing to attack or preparing to flee. 
when our amygdala gets triggered, it hijacks the system and it cuts off any flow and it shuts down the neural pathway to our prefrontal cortex, which is the area behind your eyes. This is where complex decision-making happens, evaluating things, your general wisdom. And so we become disoriented because it cuts off that brain function and we're just in that emotion mind. During that time, it's also really hard to access multiple perspectives. And as our attention narrows, we default and find ourselves trapped in one perspective, which is the safest one, which is I'm right and you're wrong. So if that wasn't enough, memory also becomes very untrustworthy. When you're having a fight with a family member and you're in that heated debate, you suddenly forget all of the reasons why you love your Uncle Bob. All you can think about is why you hate Uncle Bob and he's such a jerk and you want to punch him in the face. Please don't do that. You can think it, but please don't do it. And that's because our brain shuts out that function because when you're trying to fight or run away from something, you don't need to expend energy building memories, right? When our memories compromise like this, we can't recall, number one, what we love about the person, but also, number two, things that we can access to help us calm down, right? We can't remember much of anything. So when we're in the throes of this amygdala hijack, we can't choose how we're going to react because of this fight or flight mechanism. So how, what do we do when this happens in the moment? Mindfulness is something that I talk about a lot with people because mindfulness is an amazing skill that we all should be developing in our life. There's a reason why the most enlightened and elevated people like monks and whoever else practice mindfulness their whole life. Mindfulness, all it is, is bringing full attention and awareness to a current experience, okay? And so this is a perfect technique to employ when this conflict arises, whether it's at work or with family or at home. It allows us to override this conditioned nervous system response and tap into conscious awareness because we're forcing that conscious awareness to start to take over. So instead of attacking or defending and justifying our reactions, let's learn to stay present and actually start to try to participate in regulating our nervous system. When you know what's happening, you'll have a better sense of, oh, this is what I need to do in this moment. Eventually, this is a skill that can be learned. You will learn new, more helpful ways of interacting even if you get triggered. So this is really hard to do, yes, in the middle of conflict. So it requires us to stay present, to feel intensely, to override our negative thoughts and to engage our breath to maintain presence in the body. So like any skill, it takes practice. There's many different ways that people talk about how to engage in our provoked nervous systems and how to calm down, but this is sort of the common elements that all of them have. So four simple steps that even I use when my fight or flight gets triggered and I have an overloaded nervous system. As I mentioned, number one, stay present. Each of us have particular bodily cues that alert us to the reality that we feel threatened. And from there, we kind of run an automatic pilot, right? 
We may notice a change in our tone of voice, a gripping sensation in our stomach, sudden desire to withdraw. So when we notice it, we have to decide to stay put and be present and actually be curious to explore this experience that we're feeling. For me, it helps to remind myself to breathe, to relax, to notice where I feel heat in my body or where I feel tension. Sometimes I notice that my anger feels like it's more in my stomach or in my gut and sadness feels like it's more in my heart. These are things that can help you tap into staying present. Step two, let go of the story. This might be the most difficult thing to practice. So we need to let go of our thinking and judging mind in that moment. And this is very challenging because in the moment that we feel threatened, our mind fills it with all the difficult stories and thoughts about what's happening, what's going on and what I need to do next. But let's be willing to forget the story just for a minute because there's a feedback loop where that story will keep perpetuating all the stuff that's happening in our body. And so we need to cut that off. If the negative thought persists, so does the stress hormone. It isn't that we're wrong, but it's that we're actually gonna be able to think clearer and engage in our perceptions when the nervous system has relaxed. Number three, focus on the body. As I mentioned, this was kind of entwined with number one, but exploring whatever sensations arise in the body. Don't try to control them. Don't try to change them. Notice different places where sensations occur. Pay attention to different qualities and textures. Notice also how biased we are against unpleasant and intense sensations. We don't like them at all and our urge is to fight them when actually we can welcome them and notice them and tolerate that discomfort and be curious about it. Step four, finally, breathe. This is so important. Everybody knows intellectually that it's helpful to breathe, but it's actually statistically proven and shown in research. And so um, there are many ways that you can actually do some deep breathing exercises, whether it's diaphragmatic breathing, um, box breathing, I'm not gonna go into it right now, but try to focus on rhythm and smoothness. Same number of breaths in or same, you know, four seconds breathing in, four seconds breathing out, and try to make it a continuous flow. Would you like me to read your letter? Click on the description of this video to submit your question. The doing deep breathing, or even if it's just for a couple of minutes, it assists us in remaining present and making it possible to stay with intense sensations in the body. Think about when women are pregnant or giving, having childbirth, right? One of the main things they tell them is teaching them how to breathe through it. Because if we learn how to breathe effectively through pain and discomfort, we can actually tolerate it so much better. Paying attention to our body reestablishes re equilibrium faster, restoring our ability to think, to listen, to relate. Listen, this is hard, it takes practice, you're gonna be terrible at it, that's okay. Just keep at it and eventually we retrain ourselves to respond rather than react when this happens. Anger becomes clarity to resolve, maybe sadness leads to compassion and fuel for change. 
So each time we succeed in being mindful in our body in moments of distress, we actually develop our capacity. It builds our muscle. You can't expect to lift a 60 pound weight if you haven't even practiced lifting five, right? So, after that, when you've been able to calm down the fight or flight and the world is a safer place, then we can calmly start to have some interaction, start to have some non-defensive communication with this person. You can't have effective communication if your amygdala is just firing all over the place. So a couple of things. Be hard on the problem, not the person. Think about it as we, we are part of the same family, we're part of the same team. Let's be hard on this problem and learn and come up with ways together on how to combat it. Understand that acknowledging and listening is not the same as obeying, it's not the same as justifying, it's not the same as accepting. This is just a way of having people be heard and understood and when people feel heard and understood and acknowledged, their defenses go down. They don't feel so threatened and that helps everybody in the conversation. Use I statements. When you say that, I feel very sad. I'm really heartbroken that we don't have a good relationship as opposed to you do this and you do that and you can't this, right? Focusing it on ourselves and our experience is much more palatable, allows people to relate and empathize. Do you find this information helpful? Is there a certain topic you'd like us to cover? Leave us a comment and review about what you'd like to hear. Try to give the benefit of the doubt. I know this is hard, but you would do this for other people's parents, right? If you're visiting someone and there's big family blowouts, you have a little bit more perspective and you're able to give grace to more people. See if you can try to be an observer in your family and practice that grace. Keep the conversation going. This is gonna be a dialogue. Sometimes people think they have to resolve everything right now. No, sometimes you just need to have multiple conversations to start moving towards that goal. So even having a step in the right direction, don't feel the pressure of resolving it. Maybe it's just about connection this time. Sometimes ask yourself, would I rather be happy or be right? I'll leave that one right there. Plan this stuff, guys. Come up with strategies for when your triggers come. Think about family gatherings and family reunions. You tend to know what's gonna happen, and so plan accordingly. It's really, really helpful. Okay, so the second way that we can deal with family conflict is forgive and forget. Okay, people don't like this one, but take the time to think about why certain family members behave the way that they behave. And just to give you a personal example, this has happened to me and my family. We're a close family member. Um, whenever I would comment on their behavior or express that I don't like something that they're doing, they would turn around and they would attack and they'd be very hurtful. It was really hurtful and really sad. And I felt like I couldn't be honest and so I kind of pushed them away for a little bit and was like, okay, I can't be my authentic self around this person and because they hurt me. To keep the peace, I stopped giving my opinion. 
So what actually helped me come to terms with this, with this family member's behavior and actually helped really um, repair our relationship was when I came to start to, was when I started to try to understand where this person's behavior was coming from. When I started to think about the trauma that this person encountered and dealt with when they were growing up, I came to realize that a lot of their reactions wasn't actually anything to do with me. It was to do with the shame that got triggered when something was pointed out that they did that was wrong. And all that shame and all that pain, almost like a little kid, was triggered and they would act out of that and lash out, right? Kind of like animals trapped, that are trapped like in a trap, right, in the woods. That when an animal is trapped and you're trying to help them, they'll bite your hand because they're in pain. And so when I was able to do that, I was able to actually not personalize it so much, have more grace and compassion for this person. And so this is why when my patients talk about this kind of stuff with family, I'll often ask them a lot of questions of, what was this family member's background? Like, how did they grow up? Do they come from difficult families? And once they actually start reflecting on a person's whole life experience, you're able to almost see the child within them that acts out of that place of pain. And so other people have called this perspective triangle strategy, where you start with your own perspective, which requires a degree of self-awareness, asking yourself what's really bothering you, what pain are you trying to avoid, what emotions are going through your body, you know, do I feel insecure, am I trying to connect with this person but they don't want to connect with me? Going deep into yourself will, will first clarify what the conflict is really about for you. Sometimes fights are actually about something completely unrelated to the fight itself, right? Get that clarity and you'll be able to come up with different options on how you actually can get what you really want. Step two is actually focusing on the other person's perspective. It requires that empathy that I talked about, which is really fundamental, to widen your understanding of what's really going on. Try to put yourself in their shoes. For a moment, suspend your judgment, do your best to see the situation through their eyes. What experiences have shaped their reaction? What's going on in their life? Are they looking for significance? Are they looking for love and connection in a wrong way? What's the real intention of this person? And then go even deeper and say, how might they interpret my actions? What can I do differently maybe that might be misinterpreted because of what they're going through? To help you navigate anxiety and become more mindful, I've created a 20-page workbook for you, completely free. You'll find journal prompts, exercises, and a wealth of information on how you can master anxiety and live a better life. Click the link in the description to download. Once you combine these insights, you might be able to have a better understanding of the issue and the ways that you can resolve it. And the third step is having a third-party perspective. As I mentioned, when we're guests in other people's homes, we're often able to kind of really see it from a bird's eye view. And so in this step, put yourself in a position of someone observing the situation that you're involved in. What would they say? What would they say about your behavior 
in your judgment? What advice would they give you, right? What would your best friend tell you to do? Well, maybe not your best friend because they're biased. What would this third party person tell you to do? And then lastly, it's okay to minimize or cut off contact if this person keeps on damaging you, right? This is when we talk about boundaries. And boundaries are foundational to living a healthy life. Often we're not very good at this stuff. Often because in our families of origin, our adults in our life didn't teach us how to have good boundaries. We weren't allowed to say no, or I don't like that, or I feel this way. You know, often we were taught that we needed to perform in order to be loved or valued or praised. So our boundaries can get all jacked up. And so it's a very helpful life skill to be able to start to evaluate them as we get older and practice them. Quick recap, because I also talked about this in season one. I have a podcast episode on boundaries, so go back and take a listen where I explain it more in depth. But I like to think of boundaries as property, right? Think about it like a house. You have a deed to a house that you own because you bought it. That house is built on land and the deed says, this is the border of your land and this is where it stops. You are responsible for what happens on your land. If something breaks, you have to fix it. You are allowed to decorate your land and your house however you like because you own it. You are responsible for who is on your land. You can invite people on. You can invite people into the garden, for example. You might invite other people into the main house and you might invite completely different people into the bedroom, right? There's degrees of intimacy. You are responsible to get someone off your land if they invade it. That's your responsibility. And so if you think about this concept for our emotions, for our time, our love, our resources, what does your property look like? Who is infringing on it over and over again and maybe destroying your property? being able to live a healthy life and this isn't easy but this is actually going to really help and it really improves relationships in the long run when you say you keep coming onto my property and you keep damaging it next time that happens i'm actually going to cut off connection because this behavior is disrespectful right so being able to express what your boundaries are so you have to take a moment to think about it even being able to calmly and lovingly tell this person how they're violating that boundary, have an ask, say, please don't do this, but have also a consequence. Next time you do, this is going to be the consequence and then stick to it. And it's really hard in, in families because there's lots of other people involved and people are like, yes, but it's your brother and blah, blah, blah. Listen, no one is living your life for you. It's your life. So you can choose to live according to your family to the people who hurt you, or you can actually say, this sucks and it's painful, but you know what? I have responsibility for my life and my property. And in order for me to live a healthy life and the way that I want to live it, I'm going to stop this person from setting fire to it. Okay. So if this is a struggle, I encourage you to get help, get professional help, talk to friends of yours, Talk to a therapist. They can be super, super helpful in helping you navigate things that are really hard. This stuff is really hard. Families, they're so unique, aren't they? 
These people have a weird, intimate place in our life, and yet we didn't have a choice on who they are, right? Families coming together can be a source of great joy, but for many of us, it's a source of great anxiety and tension. Oftentimes, it's best to just get through it the best we can, learning how to manage your own emotions, being confident in your ability to not react, but to respond to triggers that will inevitably come when you're around your family. And picking our battles is definitely a good life skill. Honestly, sometimes it's better to just forgive and forget, especially if someone just, you can't have the expectation that they're necessarily gonna learn or understand, or if someone's unwilling to change and have so many issues of their own that maybe that they can't. But when we do come face to face, we can learn new skills of how to be bridge builders and repairers of the breach through our own work that will actually bring stronger family connections and actually stronger relationships among, amongst its members. And just as important, sometimes we need to make the hard decision to protect ourselves against people who will just bring pain. It's sad, we have to mourn that, but also celebrate our ability to be strong for ourselves and free up the space to invest in those members that truly live up to their name as close and intimate family who have your back.